The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. So we talked a couple weeks ago. We talked a couple weeks ago about a guy who was traveling on a jetliner and noticed fuel leaking out and had to make a commotion in order to uh, get them to take him seriously so that they would uh, realize that they had a, this was a serious situation. We apparently had a similar kind of thing here. Let's see now. Uh, this was oh, and of course the page is taking forever to load here. Jeb, you posted this, didn't you? What's the story here? Yeah. Yeah. What is this? Scared let me passengers go boycott airline after <laughs> this being Thomas, asked. This Thomas Thomas Cook is a is I think a British or Australian carrier, yeah. mainly charters, I recall. I think I saw yeah. one of these, uh, these aircraft. They're in like Las they're Vegas. like a, a travel a travel charter kind of kind of operation. Right. And what happened? Uh, the the photo is of I believe an Airbus three twenty. Um, and what what happened is. Uh, according to this article, and this is on uh, something called Gadling.com. I don't know what what that's all about, but it's not it's not an AP source or anything like that. Anyway, seventy terrified passengers re- refused to board their plane in the the plane in Spain uh, because the airline had asked them to all sit in the back of the plane. <laughs> Can you <laughs> um, say basically human the- mailing tube? <laughs> <laughs> and. Well, I don't know what you – know, there's so many different dynamics going on in this story. Uh, of all – all 70 passengers couldn't have been concerned about the same thing. Well, isn't it in here all someplace? I, I, I'm looking for it now. But the, the, the people who got anyway, off the airplane when it arrived they, were all saying to the people standing in the waiting area, don't go on the airplane. Don't go on the <laughs> – it's apparently a nightmare situation if this story is true. Yeah. Um, I, I I'm pretty sure that it was the little gremlin they saw dancing out on the wing before right. the plane even took off. No, I mean the the it was it was Denny having Crane been on having feet. been on small airplanes where you know the 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 ramp guy came into the front of the aircraft and said, you know, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but we have a weight issue and we need some people to volunteer to uh, uh, let their luggage be pulled off. Uh huh. And we'll get it on the next flight behind you. Well, actually, you know, if you'd like to take a bump, we'll just take three people off the airplane. That'll be the end of it. Otherwise, we're going to have to just pull bags off to get into limits. And people sit there and, like, they're seated on the airplane. It's like, I'm not freaking getting off the airplane. Yeah. I remember- then you suggest, why don't you guys make sure you pull only bags going to the, uh, uh, to the uh, plane change, Dallas? Instead of pulling anything that's going to go beyond where we change planes. And he looked at me like I was nuts. So when I got off my flight in Las Vegas, I had no bags. Revenge of the ramp rats. Uh, <laughs> no, these folks were afraid, from what I read about this elsewhere, they were afraid that that malfunctioning rear cargo door would somehow pop open in flight uh-huh. yeah. and, and, and disrupt all sorts of things and maybe cause a crash. Uh 
for the lay people, it can be really unsettling to have a guy come on and tell you, ladies and gentlemen, we need the fat guy to sit in the front right seat. <laughs> I Well, you know, I did all that RJ flying in, in, this spring, yeah. and uh, I know there was one flight I got on where they told us you had to sit, you know, so it's this, you, you pick, I don't know if it was a Southwest, but it was some sort of flight where you weren't assigned seats, and they said, uh, they said, go on board, but don't sit in the first five rows, they said, because of weight. Uh-huh. Yeah. Don't yeah. sit in the first five rows. Years I kinda, ago, I was kind of bummed out ago. because I had mang, I, I had, I had a, I had wangled a, a good front, you know, uh, early boarding position, and I was uh-huh. looking forward uh-huh. to a up forward seat. But, uh, anyways, years ago, I commuted um, from Washington D.C. to Lincoln, Nebraska, um, against my will, but I did it for several weeks, and I learned very quickly that. Um, there were two late afternoon flights out of Lincoln, Nebraska, that would get me back to D.C. the same night. Um, one was a, a um, United uh, 727 to Chicago, uh, and I catch another flight into D.C. The other one, the earlier one, was a TWA short DC-9 uh, to St. Louis, catch an MD-80, and it was definitely the last flight out of the Midwest for uh, for Washington that night. Um, I learned very quickly that if I showed up about an hour early for that flight, they'd automatically upgrade me to first class uh, if I was wearing a coat and tie uh, for weight and balance reasons. They needed uh, yeah. they needed somebody to sit in first class, yeah. and um, and you were willing me, to make the sacrifice. And I, and I asked, and and they said sure, you know, and yeah. um, I got a lot of first class rides like that, uh-huh. different airplane, different time. I still remember the first time I checked in for a flight where everybody's luggage and everybody stepped on a scale. And the pilot, the single pilot, wrote stuff down on a little chart that I didn't really understand completely. And then told us each where we were sitting. And because of my size, it was amazing how often I got to sit in the front right seat. Because... At the time, I was a lot thinner and made the weight and balance work out against the luggage and the, the, you know, the thin ladies that would fly in the middle seats. It was a great way to ride along, but it unsettled people. What do you mean I have to sit here and why does, why does my weight matter? How do they do it these days? Do they just like assume averages on uh – like on a, on a, well, if you fly unless, the same kind of airplane I was flying, like Cessna 402s or yeah. uh, uh, de Havilland uh, Twin Otters, they probably still do it by putting you on a scale. Right, but I'm talking like if a 737, do they just kind of assume averages and, uh, and exactly? It, that it used to be yeah. 170, now it's 200. Is it really? I, is, yeah. that, is, is that and, what the and, FAR a, says now? Yeah, that's what the that's what the op specs would say, and then. Um, in the winter time, they add another ten or twenty pounds or something like that for for heavier clothing. It, does that include your luggage, or is your luggage in addition to that? Um, oh, in adi- luggage is in addition now, to that. Yeah, that's luggage what goes is in, in the seats. Yeah. Huh. That's okay. what goes in the seats. Luggage they they kind of quasi way going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, and they definitely uh, work to distribute luggage fore and aft uh, to. You know, keep the airplane in weight and balance. If it's not a full airplane, if yeah. it's a full airplane, uh, you know, they still need to consider that. But it's probably a little bit easier. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm like uh, you guys. I've been on airplanes when I was t- asked 
either asked to move from a rear seat to a very forward row or was seated in a very forward row and was asked to move someplace, would you like an exit row? Mm-hmm. I love exit rows. Yeah, I love yeah, Give me an exit row any day of the week. That's right. Give me an exit row. And, you know, more leg room, and I don't even mind paying for the drink. Anyways, our condolences to the passengers of this Thomas Cook flight, who apparently got terrified to the point where they paid big bucks to fly other ways home. And uh, I don't know. We'll see. Well, you know, uh, it's their money. And uh, I, I doubt seriously that there's any way, shape, or form that they've got an action that's going to force thomas cook to give them their money back no 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 yeah, uh, so they you know if you're that weirded out about something it's really hard to go against your gut instincts and and apparently yeah, yeah yeah and i'm guessing the airplane did in fact make it home successfully because we would have probably heard about we haven't that. heard we haven't heard anything more so that's right uh, the only other seen. accidents we've heard about was the one off the coast of uh of uh africa uh yeah it's another airbus an old a310 Mm. Uh, so no, you know, nothing with Thomas Cook names attached to it. So yeah, we got to assume that the airplane's still out there slogging along, collecting yield on many, many revenue passenger miles per week. That's right. It'd be interesting <laughs> to know whether they ever got the luggage door open, though. It would be interesting <laughs> to know. I, um, unfortunately, it's probably not a U.S. registered aircraft, so we couldn't look it up real easy. I've had cars where where various doors stopped working, and I just kind of left them closed for the long, you know. You get yeah, but when you got, <laughs> people, <laughs> you got people's bags back there, you know, eventually something's got to give. Uh, that's why they invented can openers. Yeah, that's right. Hey, welcome, Chop folks. Chop saws. Welcome, folks, to episode 142, I think 142, of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation <laughs> Podcast. We're recording this episode on uh, Wednesday, July 1st, 2009. And uh, let me say hi to my friends here in the virtual hangar. One of those voices out there is Dave Higdon, who's talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, Dave. How are you doing? Oh, doing finer than frog hair. Yeah? Uh, Yep. Got to be around some airplanes in the last few days. Weather's nice. Fourth of July weekend's coming up. The big uh, Chapter 88 EAA fly-in here has got a new home this year. So uh, it's kind of... You know, feeling froggy right now. <laughs> That's cool. Feeling froggy. Also here in the That's virtual right. hangar is Jeb Burnside, who's talking to us from Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How you doing, Jack? I'm good. I'm good. Other than the fact good. that the weather has been crappy up here. I mean, it's it's same here this week. Um, it's it's rained all day, pretty hard. Yeah. yeah I mean, and it, uh, it, so, and this is not seasonal. This is, I mean, this is not typical for the season. It's it's um. <laughs> it's not atypical in the sense that it, you know it rains here a lot, mm-hmm. but it doesn't settle in for for days at a time. And that's what that's, it's doing now. That's that's what it's done for the last three or four really? days. Because I'm headed down there, and next week I'm going to Orlando. I'm spending. I, I have no, you know, you can go 50 miles and the weather be completely different. I don't know what it's like elsewhere in the state. Yeah, um, Orlando might be the garden spot of of North America right now, for all I know. Yeah. So do you have, uh, an, do that, you have like that's a that's a bloody image that I'll take to my grave. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it, but it's possible. I just don't know. And I am Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you from the home office in Dover, New Hampshire. So uh, where it's UCAP uh, World Headquarters, UCAP World Headquarters, where I you know so I've been home now for a week and a half, and I was just planning to do all kinds of flying during this time I was home, and uh, but the weather's just been crap. I mean, there's been like like 
maybe two non-IMC days in uh, and and I know you guys are all giving I'm, me like I'm sorry, but weren't you the guy that was working on an instrument rating too? Yeah, that's, somehow? No, Dave, was, Dave beat me to it. No, you're going to give me a hard time about this. Uh, so well, it's kind of raining. Duh, and no. But the 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 weather did improve dramatically, not completely, but dramatically for one day. Uh, uh, last Saturday, we had the first uh, uh, UCAP. Uh, uh, what, what did I call it? The the fly drive-in. And uh, yeah. at uh, Barnes Airport in uh, Westfield, Massachusetts, and we had a blast. We had uh, we had 12 people, counting myself, uh, were there, and uh, we arrived in various ways. A bunch of us drove because because well, I chickened out. Other people made wise decisions, and uh, uh, no, actually, I think mine was a wise decision too. But uh, four people did four aircrafts worth did in fact fly in, and. Uh, we had lunch at the uh, nice little restaurant there on the field, and uh, then we went out after lunch on the ramp, and we were looking at everybody's airplanes and, uh, and just chatting. And then, but then the the highlight of the day, the highlight of the day is I got a helicopter ride, right? Because one of the people who flew right. in was in an R44, a Robinson R44, and uh, so. They, you know, we're sitting at lunch, and we're just talking about what's going on. And you know, I'm saying, so did you fly in? What'd you fly in? Did you fly in? What'd you fly in? And this guy says, I flew in a in an R44, and and you're going to get a ride if you want one, all right? Oh I'm going, yeah. Well, yeah. And so, uh, I just have to tell you, and I actually shot some video, which I'm going to post um, and and show you guys. But it was just a blast. I, I I thought it would be a blast. I've always thought, unlike Jeb, I kind of like helicopters, and I think it'd be kind of a a fun way to fly if I, I haven't afford. been in an. I haven't been in an R44. I wouldn't mind doing that myself sometime. Uh-huh. But, so we, uh, uh, I thought uh, we were going to go out. You know, I thought we, you know we were going to go up and we were going to kind of like go a couple around the pattern a couple times, or you know, fly out for five minutes and back for five minutes and land. All right, and, but we went flying for like almost an hour. All right, like 50 minutes oh. we were gone. All right, we went flying like way down to the south of Barnes, sort of in the direction of Hartford, and then there's this really cool reservoir, a long, thin reservoir down there that uh, so we flew along the reservoir and. Uh, you know, kind of, and and this is all very low to begin with. You know, because helicopters, you know, as he pointed out to me, seldom fly above 500 feet AGL, and so we're just like cruising along, and it's just a, a whole different flying experience. I have to tell you, this must be what it's like to fly. I don't know, Dave. How typically how high do you fly ultralights AGL? Oh, uh, well, trying to be, you know, not dumb. Generally, a uh, thousand to fifteen hundred feet. Oh, really? Okay. Well, but, I was watching the altimeter on this thing, and uh, the, you know, the, you get into those spots where you're there because of the uh, uh, scenic potential, mm-hmm. or because of what you're looking at or looking for, and uh, if you feel confident that you can put it down someplace sane, uh, then. Uh, I'm not really sure how low we would call that. <laughs> <laughs> so we went flying down to the south uh, over the uh, the neighborhoods and the little villages, and uh, it was very, very cool. Of we, course, uh, we would never do anything in violation of our favorite aeronautical. Oh, of course not. And I don't believe we did either. But, uh, yeah. I'm, but we, sure you did. I'm sure you did not. We flew along the reservoir, and uh, and then over along, there's this ridge line. This, I actually have done, looked it up a little. It's kind of a not- notable geographic feature down that part of the New England. And so we flew flew sort of along this ridge line and uh, saw some really cool sights and uh, then returned back into the uh, airport area and uh, came in and landed. It was, just, it was just a lot of fun. I mean, it, it, was, it was as fun as I 
ever thought flying in a helicopter would be. It was just really cool. And it can be really, it can be really great. It can be really terrifying. Uh huh. One, one thought I would have though is, if you can fly a helicopter um, at those altitudes and those speeds, you can certainly fly a fixed wing airplane of of the right kind at those at those altitudes and those speeds. Get a Cub, um, you know, uh, even a Skyhawk. An um, air knocker. Uh, and, and they're a lot Cher- cheaper. Cherokee. Yeah. I, I've sort if of been thinking you, about that a little it, bit. If you need to land in a confined space, I I got a deal for you. Yeah. But most most of us don't. Right. That's that's the issue. Is that is that as I understand it, the there are, are what I don't know a few more options when you're in the helicopter. You've got a few more. Yeah. You know, choices. Whereas well, the space you need for an auto rotation is admittedly somewhat smaller than what you need for most anything that take off and that takes off and lands horizontally. Uh, that said, uh, an auto rotation to a landing with a dead engine, uh, in my mind, is an even higher stress, higher yeah. stress operation than a dead stick landing, uh, because. Basically, the airplane without the engine flies the same as it does with the engine. You've just lost the option to do anything other than descend. Right. Uh, the helicopter, keeping the rotor speed up, is so much more critical. Well, I, you know, I guess it's critical along the same lines of not stall on the wing. thing is that you can recover from a wing stall in a lot less vertical space and you can recover from uh, a right. too low rotor speed if you can even recover from it i don't know if you can it depends on the situation yeah so yeah. so we took this flight and uh, like i said we, we flew over these particular uh, scenic spots i was just describing we also uh, actually landed at a little grass strip that was uh, a friend of his uh, it was sort of a precautionary thing one of the doors didn't close quite right and so he wanted to fix it up so uh, we did a quick landing there and, and, and adjusted the door. Yeah, that's never happened with a fixed-wing aircraft. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but the, the resolution was not nearly as easy as this was. I mean, first of all, it wasn't that big a deal. It wasn't like the door was yeah. flapping or trying to open or anything like that. It was just kind of open a little crack. And uh, so, But it was cool. We just kind of flew in and, and touched down on the grass, and, uh, and, and le- he leaned over, and we adjusted the door and got it closed. And wow, you had a guy come to your fly-in from White Plains? Yeah. Yeah, John Wellington. Turns out John was actually, uh, we actually read email from John twice in the early uh, episodes of this podcast. John, yeah, I remember him. I remember him. I've seen his stuff. Yeah, John, uh, if you if you're able to go look in the show notes, I think it's episode 24. Um, he had just gotten his uh, private, I believe, his private back then. Was trying to decide what kind of an airplane to buy, and uh, we had a it prompted discussion about uh, fixed gear versus retractable, which, which you might just remember. And that was that was. Uh, wow, man, you had people there from eight different airports. Yeah. That it, is so cool. It was awesome. That was, is cool. One last thing Good about job. my helicopter flight, and then we will move on here. And that is, so we're, we're flying along, we're kind of starting to head home, and we're approaching a little tiny uh, uh, public strip um, out there in the middle of nowhere, Connecticut, and uh, in northern Connecticut, southern Mass, I guess, northern Connecticut, I think. And uh, he suddenly says, he says, at this point in the ride, I like to demonstrate to people how an auto rotation works. And I'm going, oh, crap. I don't know if I like this idea. <laughs> He says, you know, and he makes a call on the radio and, and announces, to, you know, to the airport area that he's going to do this thing. And, he say, and he's like talking us through the whole thing. And he says, and this is how it works. And, da, 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 and, and he says, when we reach a certain point, and we did. And then he says, okay, now I'm going to, whatever it was, reduce the power, or, you know, and, and then adjust the, the, the rotor so that it did the right thing. 
and we just kind of settled down to the ground. I mean, I expected to be much more dramatic, you know, like you huh. know, like falling out of the sky. I mean, I guess this yeah, is the yeah. whole thing. This is this is what people think about fixed wing airplanes, probably. All right, that we're always trying to correct. Well, I have the same bad attitude about helicopters, thinking that you know, when when you have to go into auto, auto rotation, it's going to feel like falling, and it didn't feel like falling at all. It was just like, it was it was just like an engine out in, in the airplane in many respects. You know, it was huh. just like he glided in and. Went down. He didn't actually go all the way to touchdown. When we got to about, oh, I don't know, you know, we got probably into ground effect. He uh, he added power back in, and uh, we flew down the runway and climbed out and returned back. So, anyways, I want to thank I want to thank uh, Turbo uh, Turbo Ed. That's what he kept calling himself. So I'm presuming he doesn't want want us to use his last name here. So, uh, but uh, Turbo Ed uh, had his R44, and he just gave me a great great thrill. It was just a really really fun fun ride, and I really appreciate it. So thank you. Where is SUA? Stewart, uh, Florida. Yeah, they're actually from Florida, uh, but they uh, also okay. their family is from the Connecticut area there, and uh, his dad is actually the owner of the helicopter or something like that. And uh, um, very cool. So. Uh, uh, thanks to them. Thanks to everybody. Uh, we had a, we had a great time talking at lunch and talking out on the ramp. Uh, I, I got a chance to uh, see John Wellington's airplane. Um, I got a chance to uh, uh, let's see. You now, who was it? One of these guys had a, uh, a, I believe it's a Sting S3. It's an LSA. He had just yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. was in the photograph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had yeah. just gotten it like like weeks ago. All right, and uh, was still kind of getting you know I mean not getting the hang of it, but you know getting used to owning it. And uh, it's a nice little airplane. I've never heard of it before. What do you know about it? Uh, it's a, uh, very sweet carbon fiber, uh, low horsepower, high efficiency, light sport aircraft, uh, low wing fixed gear, of course, uh, tricycle, uh, it's just a junior airplane, uh, you know, and they fly really well and they fly really well on low horsepower and with high efficiency Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, how they handle particularly, I think we're finding out more and more that uh, they handle much like what you expect from uh, regular FAR 23 certified airplanes. Yeah. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, increased control pressures as you get farther and farther out of trim and uh, predictable, stable, uh, short recovery cycle stalls and... Uh, and, and ridiculously low landing speeds when you need them. Right. Yeah. It was a cool looking airplane. It was, uh, but it was very small. Oh, I very, mean. very sexy little airplane. Yeah. Yeah. I think that actually cool. one of the other links that's on that page, I think it was uh, uh, felt uh, our Felty's Flickr pictures um, included a picture of the uh, a, a full picture of the Sting. When when you take two seats out of an airplane. Uh, and then resize it proportional to the two seats and the luggage capacity that you want to leave. Uh, you you gain a whole lot more than just a, a, a weight loss. Uh, there's a whole matter of the drag from the wetted area that disappears, that surface area that no longer exists. And it's possible to get some pretty dramatic uh, cruise speeds, cross-country cruise speeds, out of as little as 100 horsepower when comparable 150 horsepower four-seat airplanes won't even come close to that yeah, yeah it's absolutely true yeah. it, it's a lot of us just power to weight power to weight power to clean uh, uh-huh. yeah true 
So we had a lot, had a good time at the uh, at the fly drive-in. That's and, very cool. Uh, yeah. Thanks to to everybody who showed up. Yeah. Um, now here's my question. You, you keep uh, setting high. The bar keeps getting higher and higher here. I know, but here's yeah. that's right. I hope so because this is my question, uh, Jeb. When you guys did your little Central Florida or whatever it was, uh-huh. uh, uh-huh. uh, uh, get together meetup, yeah. how many people were in attendance? Eight hundred and fifty-three. <laughs> because Dave I'm sorry, Allen, no, Dave's, Dave's wrong. It's eight hundred and fifty-four. Dave Allen <laughs> of uh, of Pilots Flight Podlog was trash talking us the other day. All right, as actually uh-huh. when I was on their podcast, and he was yeah. trash talking about how that was the biggest UCAP meetup yet. You know, ever. That, at the time that was. Well, that's what I, I want think, to know. I, I forget what the number was. was. Remind me. We, how had many... ten, we had ten or twelve people, as I recall. Yeah, I seem to remember about twelve folks. Well, see, then that makes it a close call. Maybe it's a tie. I don't think it's a. I don't think it should be a contest Andy, anyway. It Andy, should be like the maximum well, number of people. Uh, sorry, it is a contest. BS no, check, about aviation. All right. So if you had twelve people, check, Jeb, check how many? Andy, see, see what her recollection is. If you had twelve people, how many? How many people? How many airplanes flew in? Uh, at least two. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> I, and, I, and, I, I did and, not fly in myself. And and how many helicopters did you get? Mommy, Jack's Zero. picking on Jeb. Zero <laughs> helicopters. We had a lot of fun at the uh, at the fly drive-in, and uh, so much fun that we're talking about doing it again relatively soon, maybe even uh, in the fall. So uh, stay tuned for that. And, yeah, we uh, might have to do something again down here in the fall. Yeah. Anyways, that'd be fun. Well, I uh, recently I want to get this squib in be- while we're talking about uh, s- social events for the UCAP folks. I recently test drove a, uh, a a watering hole adjacent to a very large airport uh, to determine whether it would be suitable for a possible future UCAP ICT gathering. That's right. You, yeah. It was did a sacrifice, say, but somebody did you say did. Test drove a watering hole. That's well, of said. course, it was. Okay, it was, okay. It was I, I, I just want to make sure that's. I heard you correctly. That's all. Yes, yes. Research, research. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there were several parameters uh, uh, because, involved here. That's because test flying a watering hole would be a violation of the FARs. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's it's. Uh, yeah, it, it, it was work. it was actually test 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 test. Because we sampled uh, the liquid libations, and they had a nice variety. We sampled some of the solid uh, uh, types, the uh, the appetizers and foods. We sampled the view, which looks down on a, I don't know, I think it's about a, a, a an 8,000-foot uh, 119, one, one, one right, one nine left. Sounds like uh, you did everything except sample the waitress. Uh, just about, just about. You know, <laughs> good variety of beer, nice selection of scotches, and a uh, and a uh, grand sweeping view uh, from about four floors up. Uh, who, uh, who was we? Of Wichita who, Mid-Continent Airport. Who is we? Who was we? Yeah. On who, the, on who, the who, test, who on was the test driving? That, yes. Who was with you? Uh, well, there was a, a, about a, a half a dozen production flight test guys from Cessna that uh-huh. helped in the, uh, in, the uh, in the assessment. A couple of them I know through a little pilot club I belong to. Uh, there were two very lovely young ladies, uh, one of whom I'd met before, that were providing the uh, 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 liquids and solid service, uh, making sure that nobody died of thirst or starved in the process. 
then there were some just plain tourist types who came in to cop a view and have a drink at a bar where they could look out where airplanes were taking off and landing. Uh, they were pretty much in awe, too. So uh, on on most of the critical points, it it, 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 it seems worthy of a try. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, oh, David, the, the sacrifices you make for our listeners. I know, I know. It's, <laughs> it's, it's really heartbreaking. Yeah. It truly, well, you know, truly it's, is. It, it, it's, 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 hard, it's hard, dusty work, but somebody's got to do right. it. That's right. Yeah. Moving yeah. on, moving on. I got a little uh, press release or something in the mail. I think you guys probably saw it, too, um, about uh, an LSA champ, as in a, a, what a, who's the company that made champs over the years? I want to say um, Ar- Ar- Aronka. Aronka. All right, and uh, uh-huh. so someone has developed an aircraft that's champ. Well, a champ is an LSA. A, a real champ, right? Is is LSA? Yeah, yeah. you would call uh, that a legacy. But now LSA. they're building a new aircraft that's apparently it's not identical to a champ. It's champ inspired, if you will. Um, but uh, I was asking, I was asking Champ guy uh, in the in the forums, who obviously is a big champ. Uh, uh, of supporter. course, there's no link for this one. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, there's it. no there's no yeah, link. I Where's apologize for that. I I, I don't have a, I don't have a link, but uh, Google it. You'll find it. LSA Champ. LSA Champ. Google it. I'll find it. And uh, heartless, heartless. Now I got to do that too. LSA Champ. And the sacrifices we make. Uh, well, yeah, it's an Abwip. Oh no, that's not it. I was going to say it's an Abwip star. Anyways, uh, interesting airplane. Um, you know what to do is go into the forums. That's what we'll do here. We'll go into the forums, and we'll look for the uh, forum subject about uh, Champ. It's here someplace. Here, find Champ. Uh, I thought I had a forum subject on this. There it is, an LSA champ. And in what for, wow. in which forum? It's in uh, it's in uh, Virtual Hangar Light Sport Aviation Sport Pilot, and its subject is called an LSA champ. That's too easy. Here, let me give you the link here. Oh, I got I got it right here. You find it? Okay. Um, champ guy uh, writes. Uh, I think it was a good. This is referring to the article that was talking about the airplane. Um, I think it was a good article highlighting the lack of payload is fair and accurate. While new is nice, uh, any used champ out there must have been rebuilt, recovered, and kept airworthy. While the 65-horse 7ACs are really only for Sunday afternoon sightseeing, any of the rebuilt 85- or 90-horse planes will do anything the new 7EC will do, and for a lot fewer AMUs, he says. he says, for all its limitations, I love my champ. Uh, it's taken me coast to coast over the Rockies. He loves his airplane. I don't blame him. Uh, reaching 12,000 feet, many scenic flights in between. Uh, in fact, every flight is scenic. He's talking about his champ now uh, because of the windows. There's because no pictures. The big I'm, I'm, I've got this. Speed's low. I've got this link open. I've got this link open. There's no pictures of the airplane. Uh, I saw What's up with that? Someplace. I don't know. Anyways, it looks like a it looks like a kind of a cub colored champ is what it looks like, and uh, I saw pictures someplace. I'm sorry, I should have prepped better. Well, for this, it's, but, uh, there's a couple of fundamentals at work here that bear keeping in mind, and 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 I agree with pretty much oh everything God, the champ God. guy had to say. But you know, th- there is a different expectation when you're buying new, and you pay a premium when you buy new, even though you can certainly get a a lovingly maintained. Uh, up-to-date, safe, and cheap 
champ a lot of other ways. There's only one way to get one if you happen to be somebody that wants a new one. Sure. Yeah, and we've seen the same thing with the uh, Legend Cub. And uh, uh, what's the other outfit? Cub Crafters. I don't want to leave mm-hmm. them out. They've both done wonderful jobs, just great jobs of modernizing and redesigning a classic design, the the original J3 Cub. Uh, you know, a tailor, a tailor design in reality. Uh, so, you know, those don't cost the same as, as vintage Cubs. You can get damn nice vintage Cubs for half or 40% of what a, a, a new legend or uh, uh, a Cub Crafters LSA Cub will go for. But none of it will be brand new. And that's yeah. the fundamental difference. Uh, and the new one's going to actually bring some uh, some advantages over the old one in terms of, uh, of uh, what it can lift. Uh, and not much else. Hmm. These are truly basic airplanes. Yeah. Uh, they're, 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 they're legacy LSAs is what they are. They've been around for 60 years or better. Uh, there's not a thing wrong with them. We build new airplanes along the same technologies today. Yeah. Uh, no reason not to go for it. And if you happen to have the bucks that makes it uh, a, a new one within your reach, man, by all means, support the growing businesses. Uh, if, on the other hand, your budget can't handle that, uh, tradeaplane.com and a little search bug to keep an eye open for champs. And, uh, uh, hell, just Google them. You'd be amazed at the deals that come and go. Yeah. Here's a cool story. This is a, a this is a cool new pilot story. Uh, this is, I'm reading from the uh, MercuryNews.com. This is from uh, the San Jose, California area. Uh, Los Gatos glider pilot 14 sets his sights high. Is the headline? Uh, Andy Jardetsky used to be afraid of heights. It says he also hated airplanes, particularly the falling sensation that accompanies flight through a, an air pocket. Which I'm not wild with that term, but that's what's in the story. Uh, he also wasn't a big fan of roller coasters either. He's gotten over all those fears and then some. It's a good thing because heights, hurtling earthward, and roller coaster-like rides are likely all part of his future. Andy is a glider pilot, and at age 14, he already has a number of solo flights to his name. This is pretty cool. The kid was like, it you know, is cool. Uh, stressed it out is. about the whole thing, and he kind of just kind of you know confronted his his fear, if you will, and uh, and uh, went out and got himself a glider license. Uh, apparently, he was mentored by an uncle uh, who was a helicopter pilot, uh, and uh, I haven't read all the, all the details here, but. Uh, and you know, story. sailplanes are one of the areas where uh, uh, the uh, age limits that apply to power pilot, power pilots and the private pilot ticket don't apply. Easy, easy for you to say. Yeah. And, uh, um, that was certainly obvious. You know, you, you have to be fourteen to solo a glider. Yeah. Um, you have to be sixteen to solo a power aircraft. Um, that's not a bad deal. Mm-hmm. That's yep. not a bad deal yeah. at all. What's the rational rationale behind the different ages? Um, I can't really tell you, except uh, you know they can't go nearly as far uh, like in a glider. Glider pods will tell uh, you you can. Get, can. Get, it's just get themselves get themselves over their head somewhere. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, you're if talking about 
low mass vehicles that can't yeah. go very far and uh, are realistically uh, an above average aptitude to uh, to continue through to the point of soloing and make it worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So congratulations to uh, to uh, Andy Jardinsky. Andy, yeah, for, uh, way to go, for, Andy Jardinsky. Yeah, good job. For, Good job. Uh, yeah. Jumping in and getting uh, involved, and it's it's terrific. It's wouldn't be surprised if, you know, uh, years from now we're talking about Andy Jardetsky, the commercial pilot or the airline pilot or the military pilot or the, you know, life watch pilot because, uh, man, soaring can really hook you yeah. into just how wonderful the air can be. But it takes other, uh, other accoutrements if you ever want to go anyplace. Right, yeah. right, yeah. And also thank you to uh, listener Ron Klutz who, in the forums who uh, called our attention to this story. We appreciate that. So, Jeb, this is your flying car? This is the one that you would fly. This is like a really bizarre. <laughs> this, is, this is really bizarre, but it's, it's, a, it's a Honda manufactured concept car, but it's a hovering car. Yeah. Um, by this new, this hot new designer or somebody that that, that Honda's hired. Anyway, uh, the de- some of the quick details on this: lightweight and sturdy vehicle, thanks to extensive use of Kevlar, carbon fiber, and carbon nanotubes, that would be capable of traveling through the air at a top speed of 350 miles per hour. Yeah. Ow! <laughs> um, thanks to four powerful turbine engines. Um. Holy frack. I mean, (laughs) okay, it's great, you know, that we have technology like that. I'd love to see one of those. I'd love to go for a ride. But if anybody thinks that's going to be a mass market item, they're out of their mind. Well, plus, can you just imagine this thing taking off out of, like, you know, your basic, you know, Walmart parking lot? All right. Yeah. I mean, it's going to, like. It's not going to make any noise. It's not going to make and blow any wind at all. It's going to blow cars. It's going to magically levitate. It's going to send cars tumbling in every direction here. All all the way up to 10,000 feet where it can actually legally go 350 miles an hour. Um, uh, you know, but look at it this way. Yeah. You're going to save a lot of time on the interstate. Yeah. Well, I, now I know what it looks like. I've been trying to figure out what it, it looks like to me. It's shaped. It has a, it has a kind of distinctive shape. It's yeah. shaped. It reminds me of a wireless mouse. Okay. Yeah. That's, oh, yeah. Okay. That's, that's good. One. It that's reminds good. me uh, of one of the old Star Trek phasers. All right. Uh, I, I'd be afraid to sit yeah. at it because I'd be afraid this big fracking hand would come down and click me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it looks kind of like a generation two uh, gamepad, maybe too. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. Now it's got to have some sort of gear, right? Because it, the way we're seeing it here, if it actually set down on, because all the pictures we see show it levitating. I'm, sh- I'm right? sure it won't sit down on its keel. It, it's going to sit so down like this and just kind of roll over have, on its we, side. It's supposed to have wheels that come it's out. It's got to have landing gear or something. It's, it's not going well, to just sit have, down on the framework. Right. It's supposed to have but, extendable wheels so that you can put it on terra firma and then drive it to the parking garage. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to go over real well yeah. with the neighbors. It's a cool looking piece of engineering. It, it is a cool looking. Th- I'd love to have one. I, you know, I, I'd really hope they make it come to reality. But you're not going to be doing 350 miles an hour, you know, at, at treetop level in that thing. No, no, no. But, Nothing faster than you saw on Blade Runner, the director's cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> 
and, it and you know, like, it's, it's, it looks like one of those vehicles too, doesn't it's it? It's funny right. you say that though, Dave, because I, I, I read an article this week reminded us that the 2019 envisioned in that film um, is only 10 only years. Only 10 years away. I saw that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, well, you know, we're who knows? Off the subject here. They're, they're least, putting out a new version of that Scott movie. Scott has been right about other things. Yeah. A new edition of that movie. So, anyways, there's there's Jeb's flying car. Uh, now we're just waiting for the one that I think is at all. Interesting. All my life, you know, I've been told I'll have a flying car, and, and I haven't I haven't had one yet. I know, I know. It's just yeah. Not the Jetsons fair. really spoiled me for the reality of yeah reality. Yeah. yeah. So, David, you gave us this link to the renewed FAR 103 ultralight. Oh yeah, the B light. So got to got to be a witness to the unveiling uh, in what's called Old Town Square in uh, Wichita. Uh, it's this big open area surrounded by a retail and arts district with a movie theater at one end. And our local congressman, uh, uh, Representative Todd T. Hart, was there and read High Flight to us, uh, which was what, very... What offense did you commit to be sentenced to that? Curiosity. Uh, I was familiar with uh, the Weebies. Uh, that'd be James and his bride, Kathy, that bought what used to be the Kit Fox Light. Uh, they bought the, the tooling, the designs, the manufacturing rights, and uh, a, 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 an admonition that they are not allowed to use the name or directly connect a relationship between the Kit Fox light and the B light. So fortunately, James Weeby being a bit of an inventor, he invented some computerized storage system stuff that grew into a hell of a business for forensic storage, sold that. Uh, he's one of Wichita's many successful entrepreneurs, you know, behind Cessna and Beach and the guys at Pizza Hut and so forth. He bought the design rights. He's invented some new processes for creating carbon fiber aluminum hybrid structural parts like the tubular spars. And he's taken an airplane that was slightly outside the 254-pound limit for an ultralight, and nobody was looking, by the way, uh, and brought it, oh, I'm going to say about close to 20 pounds under the limit without sacrificing, apparently, any uh, 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 load-carrying capability. This is a stone-cold FAR-103 single-seat ultralight with tractor engine, tailwheel, high-wing folds, can be trailered very easily. Takes about five minutes to fold the wings up, just like the original Kit Foxes. Uh, he's... The, the, the Weebies at B-Light Aircraft are uh, continuing to do research into which engine they want to offer on it. They haven't set prices yet. They're going to be in the north commercial area at Oshkosh later this month. I encourage folks to stop and take a look. Uh, he's done some really nice things using carbon fiber panels and uh, carbon, uh, carbon aluminum composite hybrid structural parts to bring the weight down it's got close to a full gyro stack in it mm-hmm. sure. and this is this is the kit fox ultralight 
Oh no, ultralight. Never mind. He calls it the B. They're calling it the B light aircraft. Right. No, I'm sorry. I was thinking of building it here. They're hoping to do about 25 a year. Uh I was thinking of the Kit Fox LSA that we saw at Sun and Fun, but that's something. That was at Sun and Fun, and uh, that's. uh, another incarnation of the, the company that originally started out in Idaho in the uh, mid-1980s. Uh, and they were the ones that designed and ultimately offered the Kit Fox Light mm-hmm. long after they started uh, manufacturing and delivering kits for a two-place uh, light sport category experimental airplane. Uh, so this will be interesting to see. Uh, it looked good. They've made some uh changes to the way the uh, fuselage looks made it feel bigger and brighter uh the uh original designs flaperons are still present um and the uh carbon fiber aluminum hybrid spars were just clever as hell he's found a way to lay up carbon uh fiber cloth on the inside diameter of an aluminum tube. So it gets most of its stiffness from the aluminum and the supporting structure like ribs and braces uh, and has the load carrying capability and compression and shear of an all aluminum tube, but it shaves off quite a bit of weight by having carbon fiber on the inside half rather than all aluminum. Hmm. Interesting. They put carbon fiber yeah. spars, lift, lift uh, struts on it, uh, the seat pan, the instrument panel overlay. Uh, I'm lobbying to uh, get a flight in it as soon as they're through flying it off. Cool. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, keep us posted. Yeah. Yeah, and there'll be a link uh, with the episode, of course. Uh, so hopefully they'll have more photos up there than they had uh, the other day when I first put it up. But, uh, you know, if it. If it's priced competitively with some of the other pure ultralights that are still out there, there's not a lot of them. Like M-squared aircraft down in uh, Mississippi makes a straight-up ultralight, and there are a couple others. Uh, you know, uh, usually below 20 grand uh, with all the attributes of an ultralight, depending whether you want it enclosed or out in the open for your flying style. But, uh, you know, they're out there. They're fun. Uh, and lower and slower doesn't come from anywhere. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. So, listener Ruckin uh, in the forums yeah. uh, writes uh-huh. about how he says, while perusing, uh, I saw an ad for an SR-22 that seemed odd. Uh, in the ad, it had the claim, quote, no damage history, prop strike in 2008. Right, and he includes a link to the ad. And his question is, and I think it's a good question: um, uh, Do prop strikes count <coughs> as damage? All right. Uh, and then he kind of goes on to ask another interesting question. It says, uh, so, so regardless of the answer of that, this is a nose wheel aircraft. And what would be involved in in actually having a prop strike in a nose wheel aircraft that didn't somehow otherwise hurt the airplane? Well, that's the sixty-four thousand dollars question. The question is, I could show you pictures. The question really is, is is a prop strike a damage history? And and we'll get back to that in a moment. Question is, why did it have the prop strike? And um, what else might have been um, damaged, or or should need, or should should get an inspection? If it's 
uh, this is an 08 SR-22, uh, means it's pretty. It's a brand new airplane essentially, and th- that will devalue a brand new airplane just from the standpoint that the the uh, for example the crankshaft's been out of the engine or something like that. Um, if it were an older airplane where it was already on its second or third or fourth engine uh, and it had a prop strike, it wouldn't be that big a deal. Uh, again, depending on you know exactly why it had the prop strike. Uh, a prop strike in and of itself, you know, um, taxied into a cinder block on the ramp. Oh. Uh, nothing else is damaged. I see. Except the prop and the, and the engine. Um, that would devalue slightly a brand new airplane, but it, it wouldn't shouldn't affect uh, um, one that's been on a different engine. It's already on a different engine, uh, as long as it's been inspected correctly and reassembled correctly. So yeah, yeah. David, how did and, you how did you do well, a prop strike in a nose wheel airplane? Well, I did a prop strike in a nose wheel airplane by landing with the wheels up, but in a fixed gear airplane, <laughs> well, that pretty much gets us out of no it. damage. That'll do it every time. <laughs> in, in a fixed gear airplane, I've never had it happen, but I have witnessed uh, said same happening, like uh, taxiing off of a runway to where the uh, uh, terrain kind of yeah. drops quickly to a drainage ditch and then rises equally quickly on the opposite side while the nose wheel is still in the low part of the drainage ditch the prop itself is already hitting the ground on the opposite side of the ditch uh we saw this at sun and fun just in 2008 where an sr-22 was uh, uh, turning off of a taxiway into what it thought was safe parking area, and the nose wheel dropped into a drainage culvert. Uh, and we had a prop strike there that didn't do any other damage to the aircraft. I think maybe it scraped a little paint on the nose gear uh, strut, but that was you know cosmetic. But we still had a prop strike there. So, uh, you know, it's... Always remember this where airplanes are concerned. They were designed, conceived, and are operated by human beings. If there's anybody in the universe that can figure out a way to frack up something that's been well-designed, well-engineered, and well-built, it's human beings. Anyways, so, yeah, the damage history thing, the prop strike thing, yeah. it's kind of interesting. I, I yeah. never – you've come up with a couple of different scenarios that you could have a prop strike in a uh, – in a nose wheel aircraft without bending the airplane. So that's interesting. Well, and I've, I've, I've known of airplanes to have uh, 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 no other damage but the prop strike on a nose wheel airplane simply because they blew a nose tire and landed hard. Right. And the prop clearance was so marginal that on a flat tire collapsing the nose strut completely let the you know, the the outboard half inch of the prop tips contact the ground, and that's all it takes, maybe. Yeah. 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 Was it like a Mooney or something? Yeah. 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 So we thank yeah. uh, Ruckin for uh, calling this to good, our attention. Good, but good question. Have... And, and Excellent if, question. If, if it was all things being equal, um, they were willing to come down a few thousand dollars on all that over market. I don't th- as long as it was properly repaired, I don't think I'd hesitate to buy the airplane. Yeah. 
So we thank him for the lead, but I, for for the tip. But I have to say he buried the lead on his little posting here. All right. Yeah. Um, so he's added a postscript at the end of this posting where he tells us about the airplane for sale. The postscript reads: uh, My son got a young eagle's ride on Saturday, and I was stuck on the ground. He writes, and he has a little little frowny face. He then says, on the way home, my son asked if we could clean the garage today so that we could start building an RV6 just like the one he took a ride in. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, young oh, okay, now I've got a small, quick piece of advice for you, Reckon. When you need to start buying tools and Clecos, uh, uh-huh. the yard store here in Wichita, they have a website and a catalog. It's all recycled stuff from airplane factories here in town, but for a one or two project guy, yeah. uh, that would be the hot setup rather than buying all new stuff from one of the yeah. companies that advertises in one of those uh, uh, print magazine things that seem to cater to the uh, home building. Not that, not that there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with it. Now, th- this is cool and some because- tools can swing both ways. Yeah. This is cool because, I mean, I mean, we've always we've always realized and we've always believed that the Young Eagles program was great because it was inspiring kids to get involved in aviation. It was kind of giving them their first taste and oh, so forth. No, 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 no. We've always known it's like introducing a kid to sushi or shrimp. Yeah. What is it? Okay. It's an expense you learn to live with for the That's rest right. of your life. But here's the other benefit. Here's the other benefit that comes out of the Young Eagles program that I never realized, and that is that the kids would get their parents to learn how to fly. All right, uh, is that uh, is that you get a kid who's still too young to start flight lessons, uh, excited about the airplane ride, and so suddenly this gives this inspires dad to go out and get a pilot's license or mom to go out and get a pilot's license. So, I like you know, uh, the depth of evil plots of aviation people. I, know. Knows no I like the, I like the kid's idea about cleaning out the garage. Uh, get his mother on board with that you know that's the big challenge yeah. right now yeah that's right um and i don't have any problem with that go for it yeah, that's right absolutely guarantee it will be an absolute riveting experience that's right <laughs> here's a cool story uh-huh. uh this is i'm reading from the aopa.org website uh, pilot reopens airport promotes local history Brad Frederick has a motto for the airport he transformed from an abandoned, overgrown field into a pillar of the local community. He says, if you mow it, they will come. Cricket Grooms Airfield, uh, 6 Yankee 9, is a grass strip in a remote area of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. It was closed by the state in 2004 and had fallen into disrepair when the local township supervisor approached Frederick about trying to reopen the airport. Oh, this is just too cool. Frederick donated yeah. the money to buy the airport and reopened it in 2006. He's a, he has improved the airfield and uses it to promote the history and culture of the area. And there's a lot more in this story, and I urge people to take a look at it. I yeah. want to know where to buy the air shirt. It's a T-shirt that will benefit the field. Yeah. yeah That's what it's I just need to find some, out. Some neat stuff he's done here. This is just good stuff. It's uh, quite a long story, but uh, um, we congratulate uh, 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 Brad Frederick for his uh, ingenuity and his and his passion and his support for aviation. And uh, next time in your area, stop in. Uh, here, this is way up. This is the Northern Peninsula here, but uh, six Yankee well, Nine. Well, well, it it fits along the lines of what the nice folks at Lee Bottom Flying Field in Southern Indiana have done, and that's you know kind of keep alive a, a, a old fashioned grass strip, and they got campsites and cabins and they have their own uh, uh, tailwheel 
antique airplane fly-in in September. Uh, but some of our gang got together there in June on the 14th for what uh, the folks at Lee Bottom call Sinful Sunday. And it's a couple hours of uh, ice cream social. Actually, four hours of ice cream social. Uh, you come in, you donate a few bucks, you get a uh, you get a dessert. You can drive in <laughs> or fly in. There's going to be some folks there again July 12th. Uh, if I can make all the chips fall the right way, and I'll tell you right up front, that's not a good prospect. But if I can make the chips fly the, fall the right way, I'd like to be out there for that because uh, I have some family business that would coincide. So, But mm-hmm. if others go back... Even if you're not part of the UCAP get-together gang, it's a great place to stop the rest of the year as well. So, uh, But Sinville Sunday coming up on July 12th, and this should be up in plenty of time for that. Then again on August 9th. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry, getting back to uh, Six Yankee 9. I was just funded on... Uh on uh, Skyvector. It's uh, it's kind of the middle of nowhere. It's up in... Uh, <laughs> it's uh, sort of Green Bay-ish, sort of... Uh, well, it's up there. Upper and oh, that's up there. Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yes, congratulations to uh, to them and uh, all that great work. What's next here? Uh, I've lost track. Where were we here? <laughs> the lost NASA tapes. This is put, really just cool. Just put, put push nearest on the GPS. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right nearest. That's right. Uh, this is not exactly right. a general aviation story, but it is kind of cool. And we talked about uh, NASA last week, I guess it was. Um, and yeah. uh, th- you know, this is a story about uh, some uh, folks that are digging up some of the old data uh, uh, tapes, data uh, inf- you know, information photographs in this case, from some of the early NASA uh, moon missions. This isn't even the manned missions. This is the early unmanned missions and the photographs that were taken. And uh, um, the theory is that uh, that they have techniques now and technology now that would make it possible to process this data in, in a much better way and get better photographs out of it. And so uh, they're well, working on... Uh, that's right exactly right. When you, when you say that data, though, keep in mind this is video. It's yeah, not just um, it's not just numerical data, although I'm sure there's some of that too. But um, there's just a lot of video that, um, at the time it was shot, the, the technology was only had only evolved to the point that it was very low resolution. You couldn't see very many details. With the modern technology processing that we have now, we can really make these things sing. Yeah, most of them are yeah. black and white. I would I would think. Yeah. But, it's interesting that uh, the way they did this was kind of bizarre. Um, well, the whole thing is just you know almost worthy of a of a Hollywood movie or something. The way uh, uh, this whole thing kind of evolved. I mean, they they really had several kludges to to make this work back in the day. Right. That's what well, I mean. Uh, I mean, back I mean in with tape decks the size of refrigerators and and all this kind of stuff, and then they just you know they they taped all this stuff and then. They lost the tapes yeah. for like well, you know and, and, thirty-five and, and, years. Did you did you look at the technology aspects of what they were doing? The original black and white images were shot on seventy millimeter film, right? That was then automatically developed and then scanned electronically inside the aircraft going around the spacecraft going around the moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Then the digitized information was sent back to Earth. And displayed as partial frames on a monitor. If they've 
recorded all that original signal, uh, translating it today to do, could do much better. But boy, just imagine if one of the future probes to the moon could pick up the original 70 millimeter film. Yeah, except it's <laughs> oh, that would be an oh my god moment. Yeah, because, yeah those would be really great. But those are I, I would those 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 craft what probably smashed into the surface of the moon, and I can't imagine they're still. Hey, but it's there. it's film. If it's been processed and fixed, of course that's a question. You know, if if you weren't expecting to ever see it again, you might not worry about fixing it. Yeah, you could eliminate a couple of whole baths in the process. Yeah, so uh, very cool stuff. I think it I remember a story cool. along these lines a couple of years ago about more and more old um, archive data from uh, from mm-hmm. NASA that they were trying to was it the original videos from the moon landings or something like that? Well, that's what some of this is too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's That's just, what some of this is, too. This is some of the original Apollo stuff. You know, it, it, it's notable not only that they're trying to clean up this data and, and you know, make it, uh, you know, to bring it back to life, so to speak. It's also notable that they've lost the data, which is kind of shocking. But, well, the, the, yeah, it was all recorded. What do they What do they do with these tapes? They went into right. that, that. No that, one in their right mind would throw, if it was properly labeled, no one in their right mind would throw something. They didn't throw it out. They put it it in that that Raiders of the Lost Ark warehouse. I was going to say, they put it in the same warehouse warehouse next to the Lost Ark from the first movie. Uh, You know, NASA, along with a lot of other research agencies, generates a lot of images and a lot of data. And we know that budgetary capability to manage all that has not always been a priority for the folks that make those decisions. So it's understandable that some of this stuff got canned, shelved in a warehouse, and cataloged someplace, and maybe not cataloged all that great for the system. Uh, I think it's great that it's coming back, regardless of why the hell it went away. Yeah. Uh, because with what we can do, the technology, and we've got an orbiter up there right now that's remapping the whole thing at submeter level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we will have pictures, presumably from some of this stuff that they've got now, and the new stuff that's going on to show how the surface of the moon in some areas where they did the one meter mapping might have changed over the last forty three years. I say, like, oh look, there's a quick trip that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jeb, if if uh, could you put your hands, Jeb, on the files that were used to create the first issue of uh, safety that you worked on? Yes, within uh, 10 seconds. Really? Well, then you're a better man than me. Uh, Don't challenge me to find the files from episode one of uh, Uncontrolled Airspace. Um, (laughs) You know, in a way, I can't blame... Well, no, I can blame NASA because they have a responsibility to preserve this stuff. But, uh, you know, storing... You know, preserving old data is not a trivial problem. And... if only because the devices have changed, you know. We uh, they refer to that in this NASA story about the refrigerator-sized uh, 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 hard drives, and they found the tapes, but then they had to find a drive to read the tapes. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, anyway. they, they had to rebuild the drive. Couldn't get parts, so they had to manufacture new parts for some aspects of it. And the thing's the size of a refrigerator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really amazing. Yeah. And of course, the films all stored where the automatic ice maker would be. So, yeah. Well, that's where the that's where they put the black and white. 
they use the rest of the box for color. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, also in the forums, we're getting a lot of stuff out of the forums today. Uh, also out of the forums, uh, listener Cozy171BH uh, uh, writes an interesting post. Um, he basically, and I'm not going to go into all the detail here uh, unless you guys are really familiar with it, but it, I find it interesting. He talks a lot about um, wh- what's involved in navigating out over the North Atlantic. Um and and uh, I guess one of the points he's making here is that is one of the things that makes GPS so appealing, um, uh, although they don't have GPS available to, to them, which you know, airlines that is, um, which is well, the, their their system is set up to manage flow, and to manage flow the way the system grew up. Got to remember this: the, this North Atlantic track and the support structure and the procedures that go around it basically date to the post-World War II era when North Atlantic airline traffic started to become a a, a really uh, high-density traffic lane. And uh, they got these parallel tracks that converge on waypoints that depend on spacing because there's no radar coverage. Uh, You know, people got to be 50 miles apart and yeah, let me yeah. just read. This is this is the interesting kind of two or three sentences that they caught my attention. Um, he, until recently, he was flying for a major cargo operator uh, as a 767 first officer. Mm-hmm. He says, "I received my qualifications in North Atlantic Minimum Navigational Performance Specifications (MNPS) airspace operations, which is some of the busiest and most procedurally complex airspace on the planet." He writes. He says. The purpose is to ensure lateral and longitudinal separation of aircraft over the Atlantic when not in radar contact, uh, yeah, which is line of sight uh, and loses aircraft well, yeah, because radar can't see out over the Atlantic. He says, even with uh, HF communications, aircraft are not in direct real-time control of an ATC facility. Aircraft entering the North Atlantic track... Uh, system, NAT system, the coordinates of which change daily due to weather and other considerations must maintain specific speed, altitude, position reporting requirements. He says this is all spelled out in a 129-page procedure manual. I, I don't doubt this, and and I, I I'm glad to hear somebody some some somebody knowledgeable about this give us some details. Uh, point one, point two. It's the year 2009. Why do we not have satellite-based radar technology that eliminates part of this problem and enhances efficiency? I mean, we've got, I'm sure, we've got every inch of the planet pretty much mapped and and, and, um, sensorized and everything else. Why don't we convert some of that technology to civilian use and and use it for ATC? I don't understand that. Well, I mean, of course, it's because the aircraft aren't, equipped and the procedures haven't been worked out. Well, group, that's right? that's another problem. I, I, for the life of me, I can't figure out why, some, why someone who's trying to make money with an airplane doesn't have a GPS in it. But is it, isn't it more that's than that? That's just nonsensical. Uh, it doesn't there, have a high, a high, high uh, accuracy uh, qualified GPS unit in it. That's just... But are there, procedures, are there procedures that would allow um, ATC to assign a GPS course across the Atlantic? Actually, INS or could, GPS you, doesn't really matter. You can you can do this GPS direct, but you're going to have to coordinate it, and you also got to remember your uh, your ETOPS rules 
for flying a route that takes you farther away from a possible landing alternative. Uh, if you're flying 121, that is. If you're flying 91, well, shit, you, however you want to kill yourself is okay. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it, it, it can be done in aircraft that are so equipped uh, and are 121, you know, they're part uh, 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 25 airplanes. They're, they're, they're not simple little piston airplanes. Yeah. He actually addresses this. Jets, read- they can actually do this stuff on direct tracks yeah. and stay within the ETOPS rules. Yeah. He actually sort of addresses this. Let me just read a few more sentences here. The, the technology is there, but we need leadership and the will of the governing authorities to make GPS MNPS operations a reality. For the safe right, operation it, it, of MNPS airspace, everyone has to be on the same page. Being on the same page means that all aircraft must meet the same equipment standards and be able to navigate to an equal degree of precision. Not everyone has GPS. Until, until it is mandated, we're stuck with the current system. So basically the IQ KO nations need to get together and make the commitment to to doing this, which will involve testing, rewriting the M- MNPS manual, and phasing in the operation. So, yeah, twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, uh, ring laser inertial guidance systems <clears throat> were the hot stuff advance for this kind of long overwater, no reference point navigation. And that stuff is proven to be inordinately accurate. And modern flight management systems that a lot of these airplanes use blend GPS with inertial nav and other sensors to make it happen. Uh, That said, like the man says, not everybody has the equipment. Not everybody's flying up to that standard. None of it makes any difference until people get behind making those tools more advantageous and not just a new tool to you know turn the nut the same way mm-hmm. and one of the points he raises here uh is that ICAO is the agency with responsibility for a lot of this FAA can't do it alone CAA can can't do it alone um EASA or whatever the agency in Europe is is can't do it alone either but ICAO is really the umbrella agency that should take this on. And according to, to this post, um, they're dragging their feet or they're not doing it or, you know, there's some internal politics or something. Go figure. Big surprise there. Yeah. Who would have thought yeah. that? Well, who would who, who, who have thought it on one hand? But on another hand, um, you know, it's, it, I'm sure it comes down to who's going to pay for it. Yeah. Uh, and it's real easy. The operators ought to pay for it. So well, it, it it stands to save them so much money in terms of time that uh, would be available if you could close up those you know in route spacings, you could increase the routes densities, you could make more time available, compress schedules, uh, either get more utilization out of the airplane or be able to uh, let the crew get more rest before it has to make the flip trip. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, advantages in fuel saved by using more direct routings and more direct wind uh, selection. So there, there's a lot to a lot to uh, say in favor of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and we're spoiled because we can basically get away with it with a VFR handheld GPS in the IFR system here. Yeah. If we play it right and know how to Well, we are, to that extent, yes, we are spoiled. But to another great extent, um, 
we're still stuck using some of their procedures. Well, yeah, we're we're still stuck basically in the seventies. Yeah, with some of this, mm-hmm. yeah. which doesn't make any sense. Yeah. At least we can say GPS and in the remark section, and wow, get cleared direct for five hundred miles. Thanks. Moving on, take a drink. Um, I just did. Good for you. TSA Airport Security Directive still causing confusion. Now so, that is just God. That's just shocking. I'm shocked. A governor, <laughs> a governor admitting to an illicit affair. Uh, <laughs> okay, now no, don't go there. Don't go there. Don't go there. So, I, do you guys understand where we are in this thing any better? Than, I'm really in denial I, about the whole thing. I, 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 I kind of am too. I don't understand what the, what the situation is, which is typical for TSA. Now, this is they, the this is the TSA plan that was going to require all these airport residents. If you had a if you had scheduled airlines, you were going to have to get a badge, and and then TSA lightened up on this. And I, I don't know where we are. Like I said, well, I'm, basically TSA decided that anybody with regular business uh, at a an airport served by scheduled carriers, uh, of which there are 454, uh, apparently. Uh, around but, the United but even States. that number is, is but, suspect. We'll come but, back but to that. that. Well, we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, must have uh, a background check, fingerprint, and a photo ID to get anywhere on the airport that's worth getting where getting to. Um, with that, without an escort. Without an escort, and um, you know, people want to go to their hangar uh, at, uh, say, Appleton, Wisconsin, or, or uh, uh, they, they couldn't do that without a photo ID. And all this rigmarole, and I've I've been through that um, similar rigmarole, as it were, with um, the DC three airports, uh, getting access to them after nine eleven, and um, it's it's not all that painful, um, but it's just a hassle, and it costs you know a few bucks, maybe two hundred fifty bucks nowadays to do well, this. The, the big issue here was you couldn't go anywhere on these one of these airports without an escort. If you were based there, unless you went through this, and originally the proposal said that if you uh, weren't based there, didn't have a badge for there, you always had to have an escort or get a badge for there. Every airport was supposed to issue its own badge. Every airport was supposed to come up with its own program. Which is Uh, the stupidest thing in the world. Um, They should be issuing a national badge for this kind of thing. And I, I have an idea. I have a real good idea. Let's call it a pilot's license. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, uh, this idea that we've, we've suddenly, like, I'm looking at the list here, okay? I'm looking at the list, and I go down here to Kansas. Okay, Dodge City Regional, Forbes Field up in Topeka, Great Bend Muni, Garden City Municipal, Hayes I mean, Regional, these airports Liberal have- Municipal, Manhattan Regional and Salina Municipal don't add up to 20 operations a day. Yeah, as I say, these airports have like two Brasilia operations a day. Right. Wichita Mid-Continent has 100. People there were already joined in the middle of the airport. That is, GA hangars and airline operations were already in such proximity that badges were already required there. Mid Midcontinent was not an addition to the list. Salina Municipal, Manhattan Regional, Liberal Municipal, Hayes Regional, Garden City Municipal, Great Bend Municipal, Forbes Field, and Dodge City Regional 
all were new ones because there's no airline operations base there. The gate isn't even manned all day long. There's, you know, there's, people aren't at the ticket counter all day long. Flight comes in in the morning, maybe again midday, one in the evening. That's tops. Most of them only get two. They're in and out. And the entire rest of the freaking airport has to badge up, <laughs> get their fingerprints right. smudged, and, and be, you know, nodded and approved by some federal authority to come and go on their own damned airport. Right. We've been it, down this road before. We've, we've, we've expressed our frustration at the foolishness of these rules. What I'm trying to figure out is what is the rule right now that we need to be following? Basically, they, they apparently um, delayed implementation of the original proposal. Um, and what the rules are right now, I don't know. I suspect that what the rules are right now is exactly what the TSA wants them to be which is subject to interpretation. Hmm. I defy anybody at TSA to come up, talk to us here uh-huh. or at Oshkosh, and explain to us what it exactly means and how it exactly would work in all of our real-world scenarios that we could put to them for 10 minutes. Yeah. Was TSA- yeah. If they can do that and make that consistent... I will buy them a Linies. I won't pat them on the head, but I'll buy them a Linies. Was TSA, because <laughs> you don't want to be threatening like that, you know, you could get in trouble. Well, well, Was you know, TSA uh, represented in the uh, Federal Pavilion at uh, Oshkosh last summer? I don't recall. I don't recall I'm, that I'm either. I'm sure Homeland uh, Security was. But they, Homeland Security was in the form of, you know, Coast Guard. Um, oh, and customs and border protection. And, and customs and border They've protection. Been there for years. I seem to remember, yeah. a, a, but I seem to remember a booth or a table that was actually labeled Homeland Security. Um, but uh, it would be interesting if there were any TSA folks there for us to have a. There, there, trust me, there will be TSA folks. There. Well, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. Yeah, okay. Think about what this could mean there. Oshkosh used to have regularly scheduled airline service. It's got a you know it's got a terminal building and gates and all that jazz. It was uh, you know, two two Brazilians a day, but can you, know, you that's imagine what they had you know the, the 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 genuflecting, the circle jerking, the Vaseline wasted, so that they could put this rule into effect only to say oh but we're going to waver this place because they get five hundred thousand people in and we can't make them all have an escort. Well, <laughs> they, here's the punchline though. Back when, and this is post to, uh, post nine eleven, Oshkosh had scheduled airline service, right? And um, they didn't require uh, all of this stuff back then. We got along just fine. Yep. Um, so now it doesn't have scheduled airline service. If it did, again under these rules, um, under this proposal, I should say. I don't know what would happen. Uh, I, I suspect they would not be allowed to do that, or their airline service would be canceled for a week or something like that. I don't know. Um, but uh, it's it's just that's just and it's not really a great extreme either because that's a that, that could that could happen. But it's just another one of the the problems that keep cropping up with just about every harebrained scheme that comes out of the TSA. Yeah, and it's been it's been this way since day one. Right. And here, here they're doing it again. All right, we've, uh, they we've throw this, this proposal out there. We've, no we've, one knows what they're supposed to be doing now. You got to conclude that that's the way the TSA wants it. 
Mm. And uh, the update on what TSA stands for tonight is taking stuff away. <laughs> okay. Yeah, totally is. stifling air travel. That's, that's the best one yet. Taking travel Travel suppressing love. agents. Transcending sensible arrangements. Uh, this is Eagle Pilot's favorite. Totally screwing up America. Uh, and we have a couple of more. Taking shoes off. Yeah, from, taking shoes uh, off. And off I love right, that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and too slow and annoying. Uh, keep Someone, them coming, folks. Another stupid transition if you look at it in the rearview mirror. Yeah. And all kidding aside, you know, the silly names aside, if, if you're as frustrated by uh, the TSA as we are, you might consider dropping a line to your elected representatives and let them know because uh, we are know. getting some traction and, with Congress. And, and when and when you do that, ask that Congress critter um, how much longer he or she thinks we're going to be on orange alert. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a crazy situation. I mean, they're not even on orange alert in Orange County, Florida. Yeah. It's a crazy situation. Shoutouts. Uh, David, you go first. What do you got? Oh, Please. well, uh, a few days ago, this is July 1, so the <clears throat> prior Friday. Uh, June 26, the uh, ritual opening of EAA Camp Schaller at Oscar Sierra Hotel came about. The campground opened up. People were already queued up. There are people already camped on the grounds. Uh, it's just going to get busier from here. Get your NOTAM. Get your ticket. Come and play with the airplane people. We'll be there twice, three yeah. times. Yeah. Uh, Dick but, but he sent out an email the other day, or I think he posted a Twitter um, the, a couple days ago, uh, saying that uh, that uh, I think it was either yesterday was the thir- is thirtieth yesterday or was thirty first yesterday. Anyways, one 30, last thirtieth was yesterday. Thirtieth was, was yesterday. Yesterday was the busiest day in terms of advanced ticket sales for Air Venture. It was the busiest day that they have ever, ever had all right, really? in advanced sales. Oh, that's because yesterday was the cutoff for buying the, them at a discount in advance online. Yeah, it was also the last day of a lot of people's fiscal years for financial reasons. and probably. But for whatever reason, the point is that happens every year, these deadlines, and this year was the busiest ever, which I think is a wow. really promising sign. That's, which means that a lot of you decided to come, so we'll be watching for you. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to call attention to uh, the Wingnuts Flying Circus, which I just think is just the coolest <laughs> idea. Um, um, I saw this. I forget where I saw this, but I saw a mention of this someplace, and I put it on our list. I've since discovered that it's on the cover of uh, of a recent issue of uh, General uh, Aviation News. Um, but uh, Wingnuts Flying Cir- Circus, it's... Uh, 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 either run in conjunction with or run by, it's not clear to me, um, EAA Chapter 1405 uh, at Gould Peterson Memorial Airport. That's uh, Kilo 57 in Tarkio, Tarkio, Missouri. And uh, this looks like a pretty serious little fly in there running here. All right. Hmm. Um, they're getting a flyby by a, 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 a B 2 bomber. They've got a oh. bunch of air show oh. stuff. They've got uh, apparently have some P 51s. Um, 
you know, uh, they've uh, they've got an A10 Warthog demo, a C130. They've got, I mean, it's just this is pretty cool. Go to uh, www.wingnutsflyingcircus.com for information. It's Saturday, July 11th, which is coming up like the week next following week, next weekend, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're in the in the Tarkio, Tarkio, Missouri area, uh, check this out. Looks like a lot of fun. David, you had another one on the list there. What was it? I did. Yeah, the Flying Musicians Association. <laughs> that, that didn't. Mean. Oh, yeah. The what flying is the story with the Flying uh, Musicians uh, Association? We got word of this by way of. Oh, now that's not nice. What happened? It says the link that I put in is not there. Uh, that's okay. okay. Well, it works like this, kiddies. Go to www.flyingmusicians.org. Uh, new outfit uh, pilots who make music. And they're trying to organize their first string-along fly-in for November 7. You can find the details at the link. Uh, we got word of this from our old buddy Tim Kern. So, uh, yeah, flyingmusicians.org. Did I say .com? .org. And uh, check it out. And if you're going to be in the neighborhood, uh, what a great way to blend a little airtime with uh, a, a, a little rock and music. Yeah, very cool. Other shout-outs. Jeb, you got anything? Um, you know, I'm going to roll uh, not quite snake eyes here. There's a there's a letter to the editor, apparently. AOPA is reporting. Um, um, Delaware newspaper uh, talking about the utility of uh, business aviation. A headline is, Business Flights uh, Wrongly Portrayed in the National Press. Um, a woman, local woman writing uh, just a nice little letter to the editor. Uh, talking about how um, um, important business aviation can be to uh, to small business and small towns. It's, it's a nice little uh, counterpoint to a lot of the stuff that we've been hearing so much of this year. And uh, hopefully um, um, that tide has turned and will continue to that, the tide has turned and will continue to swing in the opposite direction. Yeah. And I want to make one last shout out here. I talked a lot about the. Uh the UCAP fly-in drive-in um, last weekend, but I wanted to uh, give a shout-out to the folks at uh, at uh, Barnes Airport, Barnes Westfield uh, Municipal Airport uh, in Westfield, Massachusetts. It's Bravo Alpha Foxtrot. Um, we just had a really nice time. The uh, the runway restaurant folks were really pleasant because uh, we uh, we took up a bunch of tables for a fairly long time, a lot longer than it might have taken us to just have lunch, and they were just very, very friendly and uh, nice um, um, little diner there that... Uh, windows looking out onto the ramp and uh, just a very very pleasant place to be uh, also to five star aviation which is the ramp that we parked on and had had insanely inexpensive uh, fuel i forget the exact number but everybody was talking about how how cheap the fuel was so uh um thanks to them uh just in general thanks to everybody it's a, a cool airport and if you're flying around the uh sort of southwestern part of massachusetts uh that's not a bad place to stop and and get a bite to eat and buy some gas and uh and, sounds uh, check fun. out the area yeah anything else time that's to stick it. a fork in this one i guess stick, huh yeah yep. yeah jeb burnside is uh is an aviation journalist he's also currently serving as the editor-in-chief of aviation safety magazine jeb where can people find you on the internet jeburnside.com is the personal website uh the day job is uh magazine.com. um occasionally i pop up on avweb yeah 
And uh, Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. Where can people find you on the net, Dave? Oh, avbuyer.com, AEA.net, aviation safety something or other, uh, davehigdon.biz. You never know where I'm going to have to turn up next. That's why you need to have a, a virus blocker on your computer. That's right. And I am Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Learn more about me at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. I want to send out thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. That's uh, Scoffrejet in the uh, forums. Also, thanks to our many listeners, uh, and particularly to Royce Earl and Mike Morgan for creating the show opening disclaimer clips that we use. Uh, we want to say that we are very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage in the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. Keep in mind that no amount is too small. Anything you wanted to do to help out would be great. Um, a donation of 5 or $10 is, is awesome and would, would uh, help uh, you know, uh, buy us some gas and pay the hosting fees, which is really what we're trying to do here. And, of course, if you've got an old airplane that... Uh Needs a new home. That's right. We'll help uh, you out there, too. We'll help you out there. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog. You can view the forums. You can check out the wiki, the airport restaurants list, the aviation movies list, and more. That's all at uncontrolledairspace.com. Hey, David, you were going to say something? If you want to live long, go fly, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Tally-ho. That's right. That's enough talking for tonight. Let's go flying. TTFM. <laughs>